0: They knew that attacking Catholic neighborhoods might lead to an extra special visit from the provost that night. And as you can, Uh the violence, you know, decreased a lot when burning down a Catholic neighborhood might mean you were found dead floating in a river the next day. I wonder why. (laughs) Three words, physical force republicanism.
1: (laughs) Ted Cruz with a bat. (laughs) Oh, he's always there for us, isn't he? Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Shucky our law, you Anglo bastard. And I'm going to ignore that for now, but I expect we'll learn what the hell that means soon enough. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George... that that What I just read, that description is not at all what we're doing today, is it? We're talking about the the last stages of Irish history, aren't
0: we? Yeah, yeah, this is this is correct. We are not talking about an individual today. Um, and yes, as you just said, and I'm sure anyone listening already suspected, we will be continuing and, finally, I promise, finishing our Irish series by covering post-independence Ireland, but especially the whole issue with Northern Ireland and the Troubles.
1: Ah... Uh. The Troubles? The
0: Troubles, which is a wonderfully evocative name, is what a basically 30 year period of violence in Northern Ireland over the whole issue of United Ireland is called The Troubles, which is a great name and it sounds like something in a scary fantasy book.
1: It also sounds like the name of a really dumb horror movie <laughs> The Troubles. Right?
0: I can can see it. I can see it. With like five total actors, four of whom probably aren't even professional actors, and the fifth looks vaguely like someone who was an extra in a real movie 30 years earlier.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good enough, so I think it's time to head on down to the history lab. Let's do it. What happens when you mix one island, two states, three religions, 800 years of oppression, and countless paramilitary groups? Find out tonight as we attempt to explore the history of Ireland in the 20th century without getting targeted by British intelligence or taken out by a death squad. So, Aaron, in your professional
0: opinion, What is the best video game of the last five years, and why is it The Witcher 3?
1: The best video game of the last five years is The Witcher 3, and let me tell you why, George. The Witcher 3 was the only video game ever released in the 2000s with a comprehensive story that didn't make me want to kill myself, featuring beautiful graphics and characters that are well-developed and not at all stereotypical and boring in order to push some political message, The Witcher 3 features media that is actually good for your soul and doesn't want you to die. And in your professional opinion, George, what is the best video game the last five years and why is it also The Witcher 3? I mean, I was
0: gonna say, I thought I thought the crafting system was kind of cool. And I, I like the prison tattoos that all the villagers have. Oh yeah, that
1: was cool. <laughs> Very immersive, very cool. <laughs> well, I'm... Hey, but instead, how about how about we talk about a movie that I just watched? Is it the Joker? It's not the Joker. Thank God. It's what? Well, what was it? I, I, I've already forgotten what it was. Oh, it was into the it was into the Spider Verse or whatever Spider Man Spider Verse.
0: What? I... <laughs> well,
1: of course, you wouldn't know. So. I watched uh, *Into the Spider-Verse* this evening, and let me tell you, it had some beautiful artwork and animation, and the story wasn't terrible. But it still made me want to shoot myself. <laughs> I literally don't uh, have not
0: even heard of this movie. That—that's how behind I am. So,
1: I'm, okay, well, I'll, I'll just give you the—I'll give you the basic rundown. Okay, so Spider-Man, but interdimensional. So, so there's, like, all these different Spider-Mans who are, like, weird in some way or different in some way. The
0: original Spider-Man was already weird.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know that, but holy shit. Oh, my God. I'll have to tell you about it later. There's some shit I'm not going to say on the podcast about that movie because I don't want to piss off our Marvel fans. <laughs> but, yes, it was very pretty. The animation was next level. Uh, but, yeah. Well, I literally never
0: even heard of this, so uh, You I, were busy. I, I
1: you were busy reading about things that actually mattered, weren't you, while I was watching a silly movie?
0: Yeah, there is a possibility.
1: A possibility. Speaking of things that are important and matter a lot, uh, let's get to talking about Northern Ireland. So, computer, please bring up Northern Ireland, the Troubles, and everyone else involved. Affirmative, my lord. All right. Well, why don't you start us off with a little recap where we're at. But first of all... Full disclosure, I hope you won't mind if I knock back a few as we work on this because it's my last, one of my last nights here, and I'm just like, fuck it. Is that is that cool with you? I'll go crazy, man. Like that's, I think that's very much in the
0: spirit of an episode on on Ireland. So like, okay,
1: yeah. So uh, when I'm completely wasted at the end of this episode, uh, I'll have to listen to it later to remember the story. But I promise I will try my best not to say stupid shit that I'll have to edit out later. so
0: take it away alright well so let's just do a quick recap run through where we're at so last time we had pretty much the complete breakdown of British rule in Ireland and the proclamation of the Irish Republic by the Irish members of Parliament followed by an Irish War of Independence. Everybody loves that. People love Wars of Independence. Uh, During which, atrocities were committed on a massive scale by the British-sanctioned paramilitary police, like the Oxys and the Black and Tans, which only served to increase popular support for independence. Everything was actually looking really well. British control was eroding away. And then the British offered the infamous Treaty of 1922, which... ...gave the Irish Republic almost everything they wanted... ...but there was some really important stuff that was left out. Ireland didn't get real independence. Rather, it got autonomy within the British Empire. So it's kind of, but not at all, the same thing. Um, Irish officials would still have to swear loyalty to the British monarch. Ireland would still be responsible for some of the British Empire's debt. The British would keep control of some strategic ports in Ireland... And Protestant Northern Ireland would get to split off and stay with Britain, taking a very significant number of nationalist Irish Catholics on that side of the border with it. So not great.
1: Right. And we talked about... um, Oh, wait, you might be getting right into this. Yeah, yeah, you are. So carry away. Yeah, so
0: as you can imagine, this wasn't exactly what a lot of people who'd fought not one. But two rebellions, since there was the 1916 Rebellion First, against the British. It's not exactly what they had in mind. So this treaty right. was narrowly, very narrowly approved by the Doyle, which is the Irish Assembly. And the, um, you know, it was they accepted it, so they became what was called the Irish Free State. But... This whole situation was opposed by the majority of the actual fighters who had waged the war that made independence possible in the first place. So, gotcha. so you can obviously know where this is going. We get to the right. Irish Civil War between the British-recognized Irish Free State and the Irish Republican Army Anti-Treaty Forces. And this is just gets sad. Despite having the initial advantage in numbers, the IRA lacked the equipment of a modern military, like, you know, tanks and artillery and armored vehicles and all that, while the Free State had lots of free military hardware from the British. Since the British obviously wanted the Free State to win, they were loading them up with goodies. And thus, the IRA pretty quickly lost the cities that it had held and was forced into guerrilla warfare. There was lots of brutal violence and targeted killings on both sides. And when the IRA finally did surrender, there's a huge amount of bitterness
1: and lingering hostilities between the two factions. It really, you know, it really seems like uh, it just get, goes from bad to worse every time someone tries to change something because Britain just can't keep its hands off of Ireland.
0: Yeah, no, it really, it
1: really is true. I mean, this has literally been going on since the 12th century. Yeah, and Britain has a pretty strong addiction to Shamrock shakes, and that must you know, be it. Must be it. <laughs> So anyway, after this, Ireland actually stays pretty
0: calm for a few decades. Um, there are a few, you know, hiccups in the road, some assassinations and whatnot. But on the whole, it's actually pretty, pretty low key. Uh, eventually, veterans of the anti-treaty side actually sort of gained the balance of power in the government, and they declare the real independence, i.e. a Republic of Ireland, which is not part of the British Empire, in 1949, by which time they'd also disavowed their paramilitary past and groups like the IRA were illegal, although they did still exist and were sometimes active, but not usually successfully at this point. Like in the very not successful S-Plan, which was the campaign of bombings in Britain to try to force withdrawal from Northern Ireland. So they were around, but like I believe at their low point... We're talking two, about 200 active members, which, considering the fact that you know they'd fought two substantial wars a couple decades before, being down to only 200 people is—that's a major decline.
1: Well, good times will do that to people. Yeah. You know, like it, if you've got most of what you want, you, you're getting fucked over a little less, and you're just like, okay, what? You know, just fuck it. Like, it's not at your doorstep right now in force like it was before. Yeah. And I can I can see getting disinvolved from obviously like radical sects of separatist movements uh, simply because things are better than they were. And, you know, it's like these guys are getting older, and it's like, what are you gonna do now? I mean, are you are just gonna be a rebel the rest of your life until you die? Or are you gonna just settle? And I, I get that That that's a tough place to be, tough decision to make.
0: It is, no, no, it very much is. But I'm glad you mentioned the trouble not being at your doorstep, because that takes us to the issues we're gonna talk about today, which is the people for whom there was still a lot of trouble at their doorstep, the people of Northern Ireland. So, things were pretty calm, and as I I said, in the Republic of Ireland during the 30s to the 50s, but things were a lot less calm in Northern Ireland, which was Protestant, mostly, and still very much attached to the United Kingdom. It's kind of actually weird how much they're into the United Kingdom, like it grosses me out a little bit, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) The majority Protestant population up there... um, You have to go all the way back to our first Irish episode back in, like, 1994, whenever we started this series. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we're really reaching for this one. Um, The majority Protestant population was mostly descended from Scottish and Irish settlers who were settled in Ireland by the English in the 17th and 18th centuries after they drove the native Irish Catholic population off of their land. So you can imagine there's a little bit of a history of resentment there. Certainly. And this population of Protestants was vehemently opposed to becoming part of the Republic of Ireland, since that would sever their weird connection with England and it would make them a protestant minority in catholic ireland and when you're used to being a political elite who has absolute control suddenly becoming a political minority doesn't sound great nope at the same time there is a very significant catholic minority in northern ireland about 35 to 40% of the population so this is not a, you know this is not small numbers we're talking about here Yeah. And they were very unhappy with still being repressed and discriminated against and excluded by the Protestant government when the rest of Ireland had finally gotten out of that situation which they had all been in for like 400 years. Right. Not happy when, you know, sort of there's an arbitrary border that's drawn on one side of which Irish people are finally free, on the other side of which. They're basically in a similar situation as they were in a hundred years before. Right, yeah. So, the official position of the government of the Irish Republic, so in the south, was that the territory of the Republic covered the whole of Ireland, but it recognized that its legal power extended only over the former Irish Free State, so the whole southern part, but not Northern Ireland. I don't really know how this works, that you say your territory is the whole island, but your legal power only extends. Like, either like go balls to the wall and say, you know, Ireland is the whole island, or just acknowledge that the I- Republic of Ireland is not the whole island. I don't really know, get the point of the whole middle thing. So, the um, the Republic of Ireland does support political groups that advocate an end to the partition um but what political groups that are advocating you know peacefully and like you know signing petitions and organizing bake sales and shit like that (laughs) they're not supporting armed paramilitary groups like the ira because they view them running around as a threat to state security And also a liability, since their military activities might spark renewed conflict with Britain, which they're eager to Mm -hmm. avoid.
1: Right, because things have kind of settled down. Yeah, because things have kind of settled down. After a couple of generations of of troubles of their own. Mm -hmm.
0: So, meanwhile, in Northern Ireland, the self-governing state of Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, but has its own parliament and all that stuff, um, as of 1920, that's when that was set up. Their government policy was to preserve, and I'm going to use the words here of James Craig, who was the first Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, a Protestant state for a Protestant people.
1: I'm down. (laughs) Screw you, Aaron. So... Hey, hey, your Pope just said...
0: So, yeah, it's pretty explicit how how things work in Northern Ireland. So... While the south of Ireland was fighting for its independence from Britain during the War of Independence in the early 20s, the north of Ireland was pretty predictably rocked by violence between the government and Protestant loyalist paramilitaries, such as the Ulster Volunteer Force on the one side, and Irish Catholics and the IRA on the other side. In 1920, the government of Northern Ireland established new militarized police units who were supposed to complement and sometimes even replace the Royal Irish Constabulary. And these were these were sort of like the Black and Tans, um, in terms of not a huge amount of accountability and uh, a pretty, shall we say, broad powers to apply coercive force. Gotcha. Um, the main okay. group here is called the Ulster Special Constabulary, uh, which were commonly referred to as the B Specials. Uh, this force... <laughs> unlike the RIC, was specifically intended to be a Protestant force. Since the RIC had covered all of Ireland, its membership had a large number of Catholics in it, since they were the vast majority of the population of all of Ireland. And as a result, the RIC was viewed as untrustworthy by many in Ulster. So even though it's literally the police, you know, of the British government, because there's Catholics in it, people in Northern Ireland who are Protestant don't trust it, and so they have to get a special Protestant police. Ah! So we're special boys now. Yep. Okay. So we've got the Protestant police, the B-specials, who are basically... <laughs> I know, it sounds like a... Sorry, it the sounds Protestant like a, police? <laughs> I don't know what's funnier. The Protestant police are the B-specials. Like, that sounds like a really dumb gang.
1: You know, B-specials sounds like like a something from B-movie. I don't know. <laughs> Because it's a bee.
0: <laughs> I, I, I'm really pushing I did pick up on that, the B connection. That is, that is clever, though. Uh, so anyway, um, eventually in 1923, so after the Anglo-Irish Treaty is in place, the Royal Irish Constabulary was disbanded. Because if you think about it, now that the Anglo-Irish Treaty is in place, England is no longer claiming... Direct control over the rest of Ireland, only of Ulster, so it makes sense that they re establish it as the Royal Ulster Constabulary, or RUC. So, as we said, there were a lot of Catholics in the RIC, and many of them continued on in their careers in the RUC. But very few Catholics joined the RUC after that, since, as we talked about, the government of Ulster had made it quite explicit that they only cared about Protestant interests and actively discriminated against Catholics. Now that this force only is for the protect the interests of the government of Ulster, Catholics aren't exactly going to be inclined to join this like they would with the RIC, which even if it was, you know, the British police still was supposed to, you know, be active in protecting stuff in the whole of Ireland. Right. Instead of just the Protestants. Yeah. Whatever. So not a lot of Catholics are joining it. And as you can imagine, that kind of only makes it worse once the mixed police force over time pretty much becomes almost all Protestant as well. Though there always are some Catholics in it, but it is definitely a majority Protestant force for most of the time. Okay. Um, And so during these initial years, so 19, early 1920s, while the Irish War of Independence is happening, and then the Irish Civil War in the South, um, there's constant violence in the North between Catholics and Protestants. About 650 people were killed in political religious violence in Northern Ireland in the first couple years. In Belfast alone, between the summer of 1920 and the summer of 1922, 159 Protestants, about half of them police, were killed, while 258 Catholics were killed. But Catholics only make up about a quarter of the population of Belfast, so you can see that's a very disproportionate casualty rate.
1: Oh uh, yeah, I can, I can see that. Yeah, almost
0: sure. twice as many killed, and they're only a quarter of the population.
1: So, yeah, the police
0: in Northern Ireland pretty much followed that same pattern of violence and indiscriminate reprisal, which the Black and Tans had practiced in Ireland. And as you can imagine it was received about the same way. Not exactly enthusiastically by the people it was being practiced on. So you'd get an IRA ambush that would kill a policeman, so then the B specials or the RUC would kill some random Irish Catholics or burn down a Catholic neighborhood or murder a priest or something. And that oh. was pretty much the pattern just non-stop. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was not good. Um, in March of 1922 two B-specials were killed by the IRA. So, late that night, after midnight, the B-specials burst into the home of a Catholic family called the McMahons, who had no connection to the IRA. They were, even, they were supporters of an Irish politician who was specifically and vehemently opposed to the IRA's political violence. So these are people who have nothing to do with it. And they burst into their home after midnight. They round up all the men in the house from age 12 to 50 and shoot them in the dining room.
1: Jesus! They shot a twelve-year-old.
0: A sur- well, you'll see. He actually survives. Um, but a surviving family member said that before being killed, the father Owen asked why they were being targeted, and the RUC responded that it was um, because they were a well-known and respected Papist family. So literally, they just wanted to send a message by killing a prominent Catholic family. Um, and the, this is like this is comic book villain levels we're getting here. To the police literally said. You boys say your prayers before spraying gunfire into the group. Oh my god. I would say they watched too many movies, but I don't think anyone in 1922 had watched too many movies. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. yikes. Yeah,
0: so six of the men were killed, but two survived, including the 12-year-old boy who pretended to be dead. Um, okay. This was not an isolated incident, but rather a pretty common occurrence. Stuff like this happens very frequently. And like many other such incidents with the black and tans... Uh, the government refuses to investigate it.
1: They just, of course, like, you know, whatever, it's fine. They, they tried to kill a twelve-year-old. No big deal. They, you know, you know, they were Catholics. Nobody cares. Yep. <laughs> and
0: this wow. is, this is intense. So, at the funeral mass for this family, the priest actually told the congregation in his sermon that even the black and tans, I mean, and I'm quoting here, had not been guilty of anything approaching this crime in its unspeakable barbarity. And so, you know, we talked about how terrible the black and tans were, and people feel that, you know, the B specials are even worse. But, yeah. nevertheless, the priest actually told the mourners at the funerals that they should practice patience and forbearance and not seek revenge. So, I mean, better you than me, man. Like, I, I admire that level of um, long-suffering, but at a certain point, yeah. You know. And as we'll see, that point gets reached a lot. Yeah. Um, at the same time, a Irish nationalist member of parliament named Joe Devlin was actually spoke about this incident in Parliament and said, "If Catholics have no revolvers to protect themselves, they are murdered. If they have revolvers, they are flogged and sentenced to death." Wow so not okay. not great to be a Catholic in Northern
1: Ireland. Um, yeah not looking like not, not, not looking real good for for those guys yeah bills are coming. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> A lot of bills
0: are coming. Too many bills to even talk about, so we've just sort of got the some of the more outstanding charges. Um, okay. At this same time, so in the 20s, the government was incredibly crooked in how it uh, treated its citizens. Obviously, the Protestants were vastly favored in everything. Literally everything. So proportional representation, which was the British standard, um, was actually replaced by majoritarian representation to knock out all the smaller political parties so that the Ulster Unionist Party could basically exercise one party rule, which it did for over 50 years. You had one political party running the government. Um, Oh, nice. Extreme Mm. voting restrictions were in place to keep as many Catholics disenfranchised as possible, while districts were ridiculously gerrymandered to herd all the voting Catholics into as few units as possible, while keeping thin Protestant majorities in all other units, thus leading to the 40% Irish Catholic and Nationalist population only having about 20% representation, which of course was impotent against the Protestant majority of government, so Catholics were excluded from all roles within government, Um, And they were also kept out of most local government as well by gerrymandering, except in these very specific areas that the government decided it was going to concentrate them. So, like, you'll have, you know, five districts. One will be 99% Catholic, and then the other four will be, like, 52% Protestant. So that the Protestants have, you know, despite the populations not being that unequal, the Protestants will have five times as much power. What would Jesus do? I I don't honestly know. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you have thoughts on that? Not this. Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> not basically. I think a good rule of thumb would be, what would Jesus do? Not whatever the British Empire did. Like almost, yeah. almost <laughs> without exactly. exception. I think that if you just take as a starting point, not what the British Empire did, I think you'll be pretty close in many cases.
1: Give me one sin of the British Empire, and I will deduce the entirety of Christianity. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna—I'm not gonna lie. Is that that GK was G.K. Chesterton.
0: Um, I don't even remember who it was, <laughs> I but I remember cool. that quote, and that was good. I'm pretty sure. Like, I'm that pretty was, sure thats Chesterton. That was great. A. Keep
1: that up, Aaron. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's what you get when I drink on the show. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should do this more often.
0: Yeah, anyway, I, I should have warned you. you sh- I don't know. I kind of like the surprise. But anyway, so after the Free State had won the Irish Civil War, you remember they ended up banning the IRA because they don't want them causing problems. So the IRA yeah. was no longer able to operate in the open in the Republic of Ireland, and so they weren't able to be nearly as active in Northern Ireland because when they could operate Ireland, they could do things in Northern Ireland and then cross the border, and so they were able to be pretty active. But once they were banned in the Republic... Um, yeah, Their activity decreased a lot in Northern Ireland as well because they no longer had that sort of safe haven. And so the violence in Northern Ireland gradually decreased from its high point there during the 20s. But the repression mm. of the Catholic population remained very, very real. It's just that, you know, people kind of kept their heads down and there wasn't a whole lot of resistance to it. And so there wasn't as much violence, but all the terrible things were still happening to them. They just weren't able to fight back sure yeah um so from from the late 20s things were pretty calm just like they were in the republic of ireland as well with occasional bursts of violence such as a pretty infamous incident in 1935 the orange order you remember them orange man bad they're that (laughs) weird protestant street gang that became an officially supported fraternal organization in ulster and had like a weird hard-on for william of orange and
1: Yeah, (laughs) weirdos.
0: Anyway, they had a lot of ties and overlapping membership, usually, with the more explicitly paramilitary groups like the Ulster Volunteer Force, and they really, really hated Irish Catholics. But you know what they loved? They really, really loved big parades where they'd march around in ceremonial outfits and orange sashes to commemorate the Protestant victory of William of Orange in 1691 and to show how much they love Protestantism
1: and to intimidate Catholics. I love, I love the orange sash, sashes, like they're taking it literally. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah literally William a, of Orange. Orange man good.
0: <laughs> that is the, the ideology of many people in Northern Ireland is, in fact, orange man good. And for the <laughs> remainder, orange man remains bad. Um. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so in 1935, they, at the last minute, decide they're going to reroute one of their parades from the planned path that they'd gotten, you know, the approval for it and planned and everything. Instead, they were going to go right through a Catholic neighborhood. Obviously, fighting broke out. No, it's unclear who started it or what happened.
1: But no, at the no, end, no, no, no. We know who started it. It was those Protestants who decided to go through a Catholic neighborhood with
0: an explicitly anti-Catholic parade. Okay, exactly. yes, this this is they true. They started it. Um, and nine people end up being killed. I could not find a breakdown of how many were Catholic, how many were Protestant. I tried. But nine people die, and the ensuing Protestant violence of this march burns hundreds of homes and forces over two thousand Catholics to flee to the South.
1: Gotcha. So okay. this is a
0: that was a pretty, pretty hardcore parade. Yeah, that's substantial. Yep. But outside of a few brief flare-ups like that um, and other things like, you know, the IRA would sometimes assassinate RUC members and vice versa, things in the North were mostly peaceful from the 30s through the 50s. Peaceful and pretty calm. Obviously, they were really, really terrible if you were Catholic, but on the whole, it was pretty peaceful. Um, And then in the 50s, um, the IRA which had been actually in a really, really long period of decline, as we talked about, like it was getting smaller and smaller and wasn't really able to do anything. And the few times they tried to do something, like the whole S plan, just they didn't really pull off very well. They'd finally start to regroup. Um, Officially, the IRA did not recognize either Irish government, since both of those governments were the result of the partition of Ireland into Northern Ireland, and the Republic of Ireland, which they didn't recognize, but Mm. after the Irish independence, when they actually became an independent country, not part of the British Empire, the IRA General Army Convention issued an order that no armed action at all was to be taken against forces of the Republic of Ireland, no matter what. So they wouldn't resist police or steal weaponry or do anything, and if they were caught while in the Republic of Ireland instead of resisting they would dump or destroy their weaponry um, so it wouldn't fall it wouldn't be captured by the government but they would just they wouldn't try to fight their way out they would just let themselves be taken which that is a change because there were um, you know there were some police of the Republic of Ireland who were killed with in conflict with the IRA over the past several decades before that so this is a change that they're now going to explicitly not have any action against forces of the Republic of Ireland. Okay. And this is because they are going to focus on what they view as the real effective path forward. And the reason they're doing this is because they have a new head, the IRA. His name is uh Tony McGann, and he was determined to rebuild the organization and to make it an effective and productive organization like it used to be, instead of just kind of a a shadow of its former self. He wasn't at all into the left-wing politics that had characterized some of the IRA in the 30s and 40s, which had contributed to them being banned by Amo de Valera. He was not into that. He wanted the IRA to be professional and worthy of respect. In the words of one historian, McGann wanted an IRA, and once again I'm going to quote here, No shadow of a gangster gunman, no taint of communism, but a band of volunteers solely dedicated to reuniting Ireland by physical force. I see. So that's pretty explicit. They're not going to be like a mafia, they're not going to be communists, but they are Irish volunteers who are going to bring about a united Ireland by violent action. Which, physical force republicanism is a pretty long phenomenon at this point. You remember it started in 1798 was the first Irish Republican Rebellion. So it is a very long-standing tradition. It's funny, it's actually such a long-standing thing and so consistent that it actually became a proper noun, physical force republicanism. It gets abbreviated as um, PFR, but you can there's a Wikipedia article for physical force republicanism, which is the <laughs> violent resistance to British rule by Irish republicans. Like that's how consistent and long-standing the thing it is. <laughs> That it gets its huh. own title. I would have
1: thought the definition for that would just be Ted Cruz with a bat. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Derail. Gotta
0: gotta get the Texas references out while you're still there, I guess.
1: I know, I gotta get it all out. <laughs> but yeah, so,
0: physical force republicanism is what Tony McGann is all about. He's also a very, very religious man. He's a very old-school Irish Catholic. Um, so the persecution of Catholics in the North of Ireland is obviously a thing of great concern to him. Um, When he's in, at one point when he is in prison, he actually organizes a chapter of the Legion of Mary, which is a Catholic prayer society in prison. So this is like a very, very devout man. Um, He formed a chapter of the Legion of Mary in a prison, everybody. (laughs) Yeah. So this is a, a big change from the IRA of the decades before, which was kind of disorganized and, had, like, a lot of weird leftists and also, like, had a lot of criminals and stuff. This is a man who really wants to bring the IRA, you know, sort of back to the glory days when they, you know, waged a successful war of independence against the British. He wants to get
1: it out of its edgy teenager phase. Basically.
0: Um, he also tries to bring the IRA into closer cooperation with the Sinn Féin party, um, His vision was that the IRA would be the military arm of Irish Republicanism, and Sinn Féin would be the political arm. Remember, Sinn Féin means we, ourselves, in Gaelic. That's the group who are a political group but whose policy is that they don't participate politically in a government that they don't recognize the legitimacy of. So like, Sinn Féin doesn't recognize the legitimacy of the Republic of Ireland because they don't recognize the partition. (coughs) So like, they would run for um, you know, seats in the assembly and they'd get elected, and then they would not show up. Like, that was sort of their thing is that they'd Mm. get elected and then not show up as a protest to the legitimacy of the government.
1: That's that's a pro-gamer move right there. (laughs) Yep.
0: Um... (laughs) Fun fact, it's called abstentionist politics.
1: I just thought it was called a pro-gamer
0: move, but okay. I mean, it's the the same thing. Um, Abstentionist politics, pro-gamer move. Same deal. Same energy. (laughs) Um, So most importantly of uh, McGann's vision, though, is that he wanted to get the IRA back on track in taking effective action against British rule in Northern Ireland. So, through the mid-50s, there was a major campaign of re-arming um, they oh, would oh. do surprise raids on arsenals and barracks and military bases and stuff, both in Northern Ireland and actually across the Irish Sea in England as well. So, like, they'd break in in the middle of the night and steal stuff and leave before the alarm when it was raised. And, you know, they secured rifles, pistols, submachine guns, squad machine guns, and occasionally more substantial weaponry, like
1: mortars and stuff. Um, Think, things are changing. They're getting the big stuff now.
0: Yeah, so th- it, was a, it was a pretty well-organized um, Attempt, you know, sometimes they would fail and be captured, but on the whole, they secured a lot of weaponry, and there wasn't a lot of violence. Like I don't think they, I don't think they killed anyone during this this phase. Um, well, that's good, because they would just were there to get weaponry. because
1: yeah, um, they don't have any
0: guns. <laughs> because you know, you remember what happened in the Irish Civil War. The Free State had British supplied weaponry. The Anti-Treaty IRA had the you know old rifles and shotguns and stuff that they'd used for guerrilla warfare against the British in the war of independence and they got their ass handed to them because they could not feel the modern military. Right. <laughs> so they don't want, they want to avoid that. So they're trying to get, you know, real arms by 1955. Uh, some of the IRA members were getting really impatient. Um, cause you know, they, they're, they're raring to go. They want to do something. And McGann is, as you probably could tell, he's a pretty cautious planner. Like he doesn't rush into things. Yeah. So you got members growing impatient and, trying to launch their own attacks against Northern Ireland, little little sort of splinter groups. And so there are a few RUC and IRA casualties, but nothing substantial. One guy accidentally blows himself up while building a bomb in a basement. It's not, So nothing huge happens, but um, people are getting impatient. And so 1956, they finally launched the real campaign. And it's hard to say if that was when they really wanted to launch it or if... They realized that the longer they they didn't do it, the more people they were going to lose to sort of splinter action, which yeah. wouldn't be effective because it'd be isolated and, you know, poorly planned and stuff. So it's hard to say. But they finally launched in 1956 the border campaign, also called Operation Harvest, was what they referred to it as in their plans. And um, they'd been encouraged by the very strong showing of Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland in the recent UK Parliament elections. Which they won several seats in Parliament. Not that they took them, because that's kind of their thing, is that they don't, but they won several seats in Parliament. And so, the IRA thought, this is a good sign, Republicanism is strong, this will be a good opportunity to really start the campaign, and, you know, the people of Northern Ireland, the Catholic people anyway, will respond to this. Um, That makes sense, yeah. They also chose to, very deliberately, to avoid launching any attacks in or around Belfast because they wanted to avoid having mass killings of Catholics in reprisal, which is what was happening in the 20s, you remember. There was all the violence on the border, and as a result, people were being slaughtered in the streets by Protestant mobs. So they wanted to avoid that. So, like, Tony McGann, I actually really like Tony McGann. Like, he seems like an actually very thoughtful and sort of, Planet. like he seems like a smart guy but also like a actually human person.
1: Yeah. I mean, he's not like he's not this this uh rage driven, you know, bat wielding Ted Cruz. He's a strategist. He's an operator. Like he's got this he's like looking at these situations He's like, "Okay, like I know what would feel good for everybody is to just blow shit up." Yeah, like um, in the
0: center of Belfast.
1: Yeah, like, and he's like, but we're not going to do that because that would trigger, like, this is a big brain moment. You know, he's connecting this red yarn to all these pictures, and he's like, okay, if we blow up Belfast, it'll kill all our Catholics, so we can't do that. But if we don't blow up Belfast, the Protestants still live there.
0: (laughs) Yep, yep. So, So, anyway, they don't attack in Belfast. But they do launch a simultaneous group of attacks on targets along the border. Um, and so these include, like, B-special barrackses, military barracks, radio transmitter stations, um, you know, sort of targets that are involved in the enforcement of British rule over Northern Ireland. Right, um, okay. And the, these attacks are intended to destroy objectives, not to engage in, you know, extended gunfights so they're not trying to, you know, have an extended battle. They're trying to do very targeted action to destroy physical things, buildings, radio stuff and infrastructure. Uh, some of the attacks are repelled and there are gun battles, but others are successful. Um, a number of the targeted, like B special barracks are destroyed and human casualties were actually avoided with one exception. Only one, one RUC man was killed in a gunfight during this first phase. But the, um, Government Northern Ireland, of course, immediately start rounding up and jailing without trial anyone in the north they suspected of being republican. So one REC man is killed, and in this initial phase, and about four hundred people are jailed without trial. Okay, that's uh, normal. Yes, that's nineteen fifty-six. Nineteen fifty-seven gets a little a little more wild. Um, most actions were still simply destruction of buildings and acts of sabotage like we said but there was one very real real intense battle on new year's day first day of the year um 14 ira soldiers launched an attack on the b specials barracks in county Fermanagh. um they hoped to take it by you know take it by surprise and destroy the barracks but, and it's unclear exactly how it happened, if, like, they'd got an advanced word or if somebody saw them or whatnot, but they did not surprise them, and there was a big gun battle, and two IRA men, including a relative of mine, were killed, and the retreating force of the IRA was pursued back to the border by over 400 B-specials and British soldiers.
1: Now, hold up. You don't get to just say a relative of yours was killed in here without telling us a little bit of a story.
0: Oh, well, he was, a, he was pretty young, and he, um... You know, was in the IRA. He was a devout Catholic. He was also, a mem- uh, he was not a longtime member of the IRA. Cause I can't remember how old he was. He was really young, and this was, I think, his first like major action. And he got shot several times during the gunfight. And then while they're retreating, he actually he died um, from his blood loss and stuff during the
1: retreat. Wow, that's amazing that you're that close to this.
0: Yeah, um, the funeral of. That my relative and the other guy who were killed were attended by over fifty thousand people. So Holy shit. yeah, these attacks actually had pretty wide support among many Irish Catholics. um, You know, the Republic of Ireland, because th- that's a lot of people to show up to your funeral—fifty thousand.
1: Yeah, no shit.
0: However, the Irish government, which, as we always talked about, wanted to avoid inflaming relations with Britain, began interning IRA suspects en masse without trial just like they were doing in the north oh also um i don't know why i didn't put this in here so that attack 1957 where my relatives killed that is the tack that the song sean south from gary owen is
1: about whoa you remember that song oh shit i think you played this for me years ago yeah
0: twas on a dreary new year's day you know you remember that yeah 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 so that's that's that is that song is about this battle where my relative was killed
1: how about
0: that yeah so pretty crazy pretty crazy so now that there's a policy of internment without trial on both sides of the border the ira kind of becomes unable to effectively operate just like they were before because if you can't have sort of a safe haven you can go back to you can't really plan things yeah and so the whole thing was kind of fizzling out um Parts of the IRA had stopped participating altogether. The IRA is divided into like regional groups, so like by county. You know, there's the the Cork, the County Cork IRA, the County Armagh IRA. Like it's divided up by county, and so you had sort of counties that were dropping out of the action. And by 1961, um, the activities had decreased so much that both the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland had actually closed down their internment camps because it slowed down so much that they didn't think it was worth it to keep these big internment camps open. Uh, the last casualty of this border campaign was an RUC officer who was killed in November of 61, but really 61 was very quiet overall. There were very few casualties. As you can okay. imagine, this doesn't you know, this doesn't bode well for the IRA. They really—they were really trying to get, get it together, get on track and be effective, and this whole border thing really did not succeed in accomplishing anything. So, it's kind of a watershed moment. Um, McGahn, uh resigns as head of the IRA. I think he becomes a taxi driver? I can't remember. Anyway, he actually <laughs> lives, like, several decades and, like, seems just nice, nice old man. He never marries. Um, he has, like, a couple of siblings, and I think, uh, I think he ends up moving in with, like, one of his sisters. He seems like a nice dude, honestly. But anyway, <laughs> well, so he...
1: <laughs> Not to the British. Well,
0: being nice to the British is actually being evil because
1: you shouldn't be nice to them. Yeah, if you if you hate the British, you're you're technically a nice old man. I'm I'm yeah. sorry to tell you this. So the so um, all of you listening who have had your opinions changed on the British Empire, you are now nice old men and welcome. Enjoy <laughs> enjoy your retirement. Um. <laughs> enjoy being a curmudgeon. <laughs>
0: So, yeah, so the failure of the border campaign is kind of a watershed moment for the IRA as people were trying to figure out what had gone wrong and why it hadn't sparked significant uprisings among the Irish Catholic populations of, Nor- of Northern Ireland, which is what they'd hoped. You know, everybody's looking for answers and trying to figure out what happened and how can we avoid this happening again. Yeah. Um, are we doing an honorable mention this week? I didn't get one done. Okay. So, Sorry. That's fine. I okay. didn't know, so I just wanted to check because I didn't want to like, get to the end. And you'd be like, is it time yet for my honorable mention Like as we're closing the show? <laughs> I'm too busy for that shit. <coughs> so, okay. Oh, sorry. Good. Then we can continue on. So, yeah. People are trying to figure out why. For some members of the IRA, including Cahill Goulding, who replaced McGann as chief of staff, that is the leader of the IRA... The answer was that social and economic issues were what really mattered to people, not the old school nationalist republicanism and the Catholic versus Protestant thing. He thought none of that really
1: mattered. Um, It was all about economic stuff. So Uh, he starts Marxist, isn't he? Yes, he is. Oh, for Christ! He
0: starts reforming, transforming the IRA and leading it down the road of leftist and within a few years, explicitly
1: Marxist politics. Oh, this can't go well. Yeah,
0: so he's he's got sort of his little group in the leadership who just all become Marxists because the, um, the IRA border campaign failed. And that seems like a really big jump to me. The border campaign failed. Let's literally, you know, become adherents of Marxism. I don't get it, man. I don't get it, but okay. So under his leadership, the IRA starts working with communist groups and actively engaging in politics, which the IRA had for a long time i.e. literally forever, had refused to do since, as we talked about, it didn't recognize the legitimacy of the government of the Republic of Ireland, so it wouldn't participate in it, and obviously it didn't recognize the government of the of Northern Ireland either, needless to say. Yeah. So they wouldn't do politics. But, under uh, Goulding's leadership, they start getting involved politically. They thought that rather than uniting Ireland by ending British control over the North with Hashtag physical force republicanism. Um, <laughs> sorry, I just really love that term. It's
1: just—it's a great physical term. Force physical force Republican. republicanism. Just I that. just see Ted Cruz with a bat. I don't know what else to say. I'm going to get that tattooed on my chest. Physical force republicanism. Anyway, <laughs> um,
0: so rather than that, they think that instead they could end the violence between Catholics and Protestants through awaking class consciousness among the workers and getting them to direct their energy collectively against the bourgeoisie. Oh, okay. We've heard this one before. Yeah. yeah, so they think that if they could just convince the Protestants and the Catholics to be friends, they somehow think Marxist dialectic will literally end 500 years of animosity and violence. And well, that that makes them tonight's biggest loser. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's it's a complete change from what the IRA had long been about. The IRA, for a long time, was about physical force, republicanism, uniting Ireland by driving the British out and forming you know the Republic of Ireland. And at various stages, either implicitly or explicitly, Catholicism was a big part of the IRA, based on the fact that. You know, the people who supported them were pretty much almost exclusively Catholics. The people they were fighting were almost exclusively Protestants. So there was a big religious element, and the this new flavor IRA just thinks that um, you know materialist dialectic is somehow going to fix
1: all this. Yeah, no, that's I got that. Uh, it's like the IRA being infected with Marxism. I just got that that meme of SpongeBob shouting, "Soiled it, soiled yeah. it." <laughs> that's what it feels like.
0: <laughs> yeah. So. The upshot of all of this is that they pretty much abandoned the idea of military campaigns against the British and the B Specials in the North, since after all, such nationalist undertakings would delay the inevitable alliance of the workers on both sides of the border against the bourgeoisie. Uh, so, yeah, they pretty much give you know, up the like, whole point
1: that they existed for. Dude, do you remember a few weeks back when they accused? that jewish woman who was like leading romania and doing a decent job of being a nationalist because she was trying to export uh like political prisoners from romania to israel or whatever and they're like you're a nationalist and they had to like take her out or whatever i do remember yeah my god man it's the same shit every time yeah so
0: the result of this is that They were reluctant to and by which I mean, they just stopped uh, using force to defend Catholic areas of Northern Ireland, especially in Belfast, when they came under attack from Ulster loyalists with that, which that is what they'd been the IRA had been doing since the 20s protecting the Catholic minority since there are constantly, like, you know, Protestant mobs and stuff trying to murder people and burn stuff down. And this new... They were the ones who needed it. This new yeah. woke IRA doesn't want to do that because that will, you know, delay this workers' unity stuff because the people burning down the innocent people's houses are also workers and so they're not the enemy. It was, it's complete bullshit.
1: Um, uh, you know, this is why I hate the 60s, but carry on.
0: Yeah, um... Around the same time, so the 60s, um, the allegedly moderate Unionist Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, Terence O'Neill, tries to introduce some little reforms to kind of lessen the discrimination against Catholics a little bit, but he gets shut down completely by um, Protestant leaders in Northern Ireland, as well as his own Ulster Unionist party. They're like, nope, nope, not doing it, not happening. Gotta gotta pick on those Catholics. He just gives up on that. It's like, okay, well, I tried. But in response to this, um, you know, that the idea of reform was kind of put out there and then just fell apart, you end up with a big civil rights movement among the Catholics, the Irish Catholics in Northern Ireland. Um, it was a nonviolent movement that wanted to use peaceful means of protest to try to end the many forms of systematic discrimination against Catholics that was happening, Um They would do marches and protests and stuff, like, you know, peaceful, nice stuff. But their nonviolent demonstrations were usually viciously attacked by Protestant paramilitaries, usually with the police standing by and watching, sometimes with the police participating themselves. How
1: familiar does that sound? Wow. Pretty familiar. Pretty familiar.
0: In one very notorious incident, uh, a civil rights rights march by Catholics was attacked by a Loyalist mob of about 300, over a hundred of whom were out-of-uniform B-specials. They used stones and clubs and iron bars and bats with nails driven through them to beat the unarmed protesters. The government including the supposedly moderate prime minister we just mentioned, blamed the marchers for inciting this by marching and refused to prosecute any of the Protestants.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, I'm about to go full 180 on what I said earlier about like them marching through a Catholic neighborhood, them being the instigators. Uh, well, I think there's a slight difference between a, a, a civil a rights difference.
0: march and a um, we're celebrating Protestant triumphalism and wearing weird sashes and throwing rocks march
1: yeah no i'm not i didn't mean i was kind of joking i mean what i mean is is like it's different when they also weren't
0: going through a neighborhood they were marching through the countryside where no one lived the mob of protestants directly came to them
1: okay well that changes everything forget (laughs) everything i said i am stupid
0: yeah so this was yeah this was very very blatant um Soon after this, another Protestant fraternal organization, which is called the Apprentice Boys, which sounds like another stupid gang. Where were we? Oh, yeah. So the Apprentice Boys, um, another weird Protestant organization, Uh, they announced that they are going to have a march in force right through Derry, which was a Catholic majority city. Of course, its government wasn't Catholic because of the gerrymandering, but its population was overwhelmingly Catholic. ...in celebration of Protestant victories over Catholics, and they do this, and there's some rock-throwing between Catholics and Protestants. It's hard to tell who who started what, but there's some rock-throwing, and that soon turns into a full-scale riot, as the police show up and protect and also encourage the Protestant combatants, which leads to the police sort of leading a massive mob towards a Catholic slum neighborhood, which was known as the Bogside, but the residents of the Bogside actually, like, put up barricades to block entrance to it, and they're ready, and when the police and the mob try to force their way in, they uh, start throwing Molotov cocktails from the roofs at the uh, police, and
1: that effectively stops the mob from going in since there's now a wall of fire. Well, I was about to ask, how did the police know the difference between the Catholics and the Protestants? I mean, they all, they all look the same, right? Except that the Protestants are all, like...
0: They're probably wearing some sort of weird ceremonial thing, because remember, they're on a march. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah, and, and they're called the Apprentice Boys. Yeah, and, um... Meanwhile, the Master Boys over there on the Catholic side... <laughs> yeah, the so yeah, this Catholic
0: slum, the bog side, holds out. But, since the police and the mob get stopped there... It just kind of devolves into a citywide battle as hundreds of civilians are battling it out between Catholics and Protestants. And here, I have no idea how the police would figure out who's who because it basically just devolves into chaos. The police are just beating up any Catholics they find, everyone's fighting everyone else. The police actually flood whole city blocks with tear gas. Um, the riots last for days. So the police's refusal to, you know, do anything about the apprentice boys in the first place has now led to this situation completely spitting out of control is eventually the whole city is involved in the violence and police and military from all over Northern Ireland are just pouring in to try to restore order. They begin using firearms and shooting people. Um, a large force of B specials who of course, notorious for brutality is dispatched into Derry. Um, at this time, the Prime Minister of the Republic of Ireland, which is called, called the Tshik, um, he actually makes a televised speech about what's going on. And he says that um, he, quote, could not stand by and watch innocent people injured and perhaps worse. And he sends the Irish army to the border where they set up field hospitals to treat um, Irish Catholics who were wounded because Derry is pretty close to the border. But, you know, this is a tense situation, like, there's a very real chance that the Republic of Ireland would invade Northern Ireland and God knows what would happen, um, which probably actually then increases the brutality with which the police treat the Catholics and Derry. But mm-hmm. it's just, it's a really, really bad situation. And eventually the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland calls in the British Army Uh-oh. to quell it. And by the end of the week, over a thousand people um, were wounded. Though amazingly, no one actually died in this, which I don't even know how that happened. But... Yeah. As a reaction to the stuff happening in Derry, there were Protestant riots in Belfast, um, which killed seven Catholics, and two Protestants were killed, um, and a Protestant mob in Belfast burned down an entire Catholic neighborhood and drove almost 2,000 Catholics from their homes.
1: Ugh, okay.
0: Yeah, and here's the deal. That newly Marxist IRA leadership refuses to take action to protect Catholic areas. This did not sit well with the rank and file, you know, the people who had been on the ground fighting British oppression for decades not cool that the leadership yeah. was now just seeing all this and be like but the dialectic is more important. We can't we can't do anything. It will alienate some of the workers. Uh, yeah, ew. so as, <laughs> as a result, the IRA splits into two groups, the so-called official IRA because the leader of the IRA and, of course, most of the high leadership, since he appointed them, right. were the Marxist group. And so they're called the official IRA. And then the other group calls themselves the provisional IRA. Provisional in the sense of, you know, we're taking care of things until we figure out what the uh, you know permanent status is. But the name actually sticks, and so they're always the provisional IRA. They never develop a permanent name. Um, they oh. refused to continue standing by and not protecting the Irish populations of the north. Initially, the split was about 50-50. But as the sectarian violence in the north continued to spiral out of control, the Provisional IRA, um, known as the Provos—that's what everybody calls them—just s- swelled from new recruitment and from defections from the officials. So it was originally about half and half. But as things keep getting worse in the north, a lot of people who went with
1: the officials were like, "Yeah, you know what? Those guys are right. We're, we're going with the Provos now." That pathetic little Marxist voice you did a second ago—I can just hear it saying, "Where are you going?" Don't leave. Don't go to the provos. <laughs> yeah. So
0: I'm not going to make a explicit statement, but I think we can all guess what I think about this split.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yep. Yep. So following all this violence in 1969, the IRA provos, of course, not the stupid one, uh, begin to arm and train to protect nationalist areas from further attack. You know, they start keeping weapons caches and, you know, groups that are ready to fight in areas that might be under attack. And this has the effect of quelling a large part of the violence, since the Loyalist paramilitaries and the Apprentice Boys and all those other stupid groups and the RUC, they knew that attacking Catholic neighborhoods might lead to an extra special visit from the provost that night. And as you can, Uh the violence, you know, decreased a lot when burning down a Catholic neighborhood might mean you were found dead floating in a river the next day. I wonder why <laughs> three words physical force republicanism <laughs> Ted Cruz with a bat <laughs> oh, he's always there for us, isn't he? Yes, <laughs> so yeah, so that's that's the situation um it's actually yeah gets a little bit better because of the the provost, but the government of Northern Ireland was determined to stamp out the provost because obviously how dare someone protect the Catholic population so they start mass internment of anyone suspected in involvement you know he's rounding up hundreds of people and putting them in internment camps this policy obviously leads to protests on the part of Catholics since you know, that's obvious. They don't want to be interned. And the protests are violently suppressed, um, leading to over 20 deaths within a few days of civilians killed. Jesus. In August of 1971, the British Army launched an operation to round up suspected provosts in a Catholic neighborhood in Belfast. Um, and this was so they sent the British Paratroop, uh, Parachute Regiment... To round these people up. But what actually happened is they just kind of wandered around for a few days and murdered eleven civilians, including a Catholic priest. They didn't actually ca- they didn't actually capture anyone. They just kind of wandered around murdering people.
1: Oh my god. Fuck the British Army.
0: Yeah. So, for whatever reason, the British military, who had actually originally been welcomed by the Catholic population of Ireland as a more neutral force that would protect them from the Protestant mobs and the RUC and the B Specials and kind of keep the peace, they were no longer looked upon favorably for whatever reason.
1: Yeah, um, some reason. <laughs> some reason.
0: Who can say? Around the same time, um, probably coincidentally, definitely nothing to do with all this, a sniper uh, nay a British soldier in Derry. <laughs> <laughs> I did not expect that. Okay. Yep. Yep. Look at am I'm, I'm, I'm up on my meme language. You can um, do memes. <laughs> and by the end of the year, the IRA had killed 40 British soldiers in Northern Ireland. So, they, they weren't messing around. They're yeah, like, you know, that. you're gonna wander around a neighborhood and murder people? Well...
1: Watch behind your back. Look at a picture of a bunch of dead British soldier. What are those?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So the activities of the British in Northern Ireland with like this, you know, indiscriminate murdering of people had gotten so bad that the official IRA had finally, uh, you know, joined the conflict by 1971. Um, so if both IRA groups were simultaneously fighting in the north, though, of course, the majority of the fighting was done by provost. The officials did some more more into doing. They did some defensive operations like they they protected areas and stuff. Um, in August, a company of officials held off a force of 600 British soldiers who had been sent to raid a neighborhood in Belfast for mass internments. Um, so they did some good stuff, but they didn't really take offensive action. They did some defense and it yeah. wasn't nearly as much as the provos were doing. So like they get a little bit of credit, but not very much.
1: They're still they're still Marxists, so they, yeah. they lose on this podcast every <laughs> time. By nineteen
0: seventy two, um the government just banned all protest marches. And okay. <laughs> obviously not popular among the people doing the protesting the catholics and so there was an anti-internment protest held outside of an internment camp and it was brutally suppressed by the british soldiers of guess what the parachute regiment the same ones who had killed those 11 civilians the year before um 14 people most of them teenagers were killed in an event which became known as bloody sunday
1: i've heard of that Yeah,
0: most of them were shot in the back as they fled from the violence after the soldiers began beating the protesters with clubs and rifle butts. You know, these literal, like, you know, 15-year-olds would run away, and a British soldier would just shoot them in the back as they're running. Bastards. The official British army position. I hope the scorn in my voice was evident. (laughs) (laughs) was that the paratroopers had reacted to gun and nail bomb attacks from suspected IRA members. However, now this is funny, apart from the literal soldiers who were there, all eyewitnesses, including the protesters, local residents, and both British and Irish journalists who were there, the soldiers fired into an unarmed crowd, and were shooting fleeing people and shot people tending the wounded and were never fired upon themselves. No British soldier was wounded by gunfire or reported any injuries after this, and no bullets or nail bombs were recovered that would show that they'd been attacked.
1: But obviously, they did still go off, George. Trust the
0: government, folks.
1: Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. So
0: this is, it's, it's disgusting, um... This is widely considered the real start of the period of Irish history known as the Troubles that we talked okay. about. This is go. when it's it's it gets real. Um, despite the brutal violence that's happening, the official IRA, for some reason, declares a ceasefire later that year. And it's like, all right, we're done. We've done our part. However, there were some sporadic retaliatory killings of soldiers and police still undertaken by officials, um, but they've officially... <laughs> officially stopped um, participating in the war, but some individual members still are. But as the res- as a result of them sort of, you know, saying we're done with the with the war, the popularity of the officials just plummets further and the popularity of the provost surges because, you know, just think about it, there's so much anger and resentment going around, you know, mm-hmm. especially among, like, young people, like, you know, the- all those teenagers murdered in Derry in Bloody Sunday you know young people have a lot of energy and a lot of anger yeah and it just reaches a fever pitch and the provos are the only ones putting that anger into action and you know the officials the old government of the IRA had pretty much gone uh, gone on to you know their own business and didn't care anymore this new IRA the provos was willing to sort of take on the role of defenders of the catholic community in northern ireland while the officials were seeking world class, working class, ecumenical unity across the borders or something stupid like that, um, people were dying, and the provos were the ones who were fighting back, not the officials. So, as you can imagine, the provos are the ones that people are sort of
1: supporting and joining and helping. Who's more popular, the the guy who jumps in front of a bullet or the guy who studies bullets? <laughs> you know, yeah, like. That's 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 kind of what this gets down to, is like the 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 Marxists over there in the official IRA are kind of like, oh, there's really nothing to be done, and the provisional IRA is like the Catholics could use a hand and the and the Marxists are like, nah, we want to talk about But that'll uh, that'll
0: alienate the workers of the North who aren't Catholic.
1: Yeah. It's like, well, the
0: workers of the North who aren't Catholic are probably the ones burning down Catholic neighborhoods. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's my sympathies are pretty pretty apparent i would say
1: (laughs) i mean clearly and it's it's to be fair i mean i'm sitting over here on the other side of this like literally anglo and i'm going you've got a point bro (laughs) so
0: yeah so it's it's not a great situation for anyone really um but as northern ireland is really is plunging into further and further violence um whole catholic areas Start being defended by barricades and IRA militias, and become impenetrable by the police or the military. Basically, like no-go zones, but good because they're actually it's it's not a no-go zone so that crime can run rampant. It's a no-go zone so the government can't murder you. Um, <laughs> so the, one of the most famous examples of this is what is called Free Dairy, which is a big portion of the city of Derry where all those massacres happened. Um, the Catholic portion declared itself as Free Dairy and pretty much successfully isolated itself from the rest of Northern Ireland. You know, they had barricades, so there's only a couple ways in and out of Free Dairy. It was protected by the IRA, and it was a sort of little, like, Catholic uh, enclave that was protected. Yeah, a little safe haven. And so the um, dairy is called by the British London Dairy. <laughs> some stupid British London crap whatever but that leads to one of my favorite Irish republican jokes which is what's the only word in English that has six silent letters London dairy because you know, cuz in official documents it would be called London dairy but all, obviously Irish would just call it dairy right and so oh. the only word in the English language with six silent letters is dairy because you know there's an l o d l o n d o n That aren't said. (laughs) Right. That's good. So yeah, good Republican joke there. Wait, wait, wait. What kind of Republican joke though? A physical force Republican joke. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, um, you have these, you know, these no-go zones where Catholics are able to live, you know, relatively peacefully because of the IRA um, and things are just spiraling out of control as it's apparent. The government of Northern Ireland is kind of just losing it. And as a result, the British government actually steps in, in 1972, I think, and oh, takes no. away the autonomy of Northern Ireland. Because remember, it was an autonomous part of the United Kingdom, so they had their own parliament and everything. The British government literally takes that away from them because of how badly Northern Ireland is screwed up. Yeah, okay. And so they institute direct rule from London. There's a uh, an official a- appointed by the British government in London who essentially rules Ireland for the British.
1: Okay, I think he's
0: called the Secretary General for Northern Ireland. I don't remember. Anyway, so the British are directly ruling. Um, And they um, lift the prohibitions, which had been in place on various Protestant extremist groups, because as sort of part of trying to get things back under control, the Ulster government had at least officially stopped supporting things like the Ulster volunteer force and those paramilitaries on the ground, the police were still working with them and supporting them, but the government had stopped its policy of supporting them and had banned some of them, even though of course that wasn't really enforced, but for whatever reason, once the British are in direct rule, they lift all those and say, you know what? Go crazy. Extremist Protestant militias. And predictably the violence got even worse. Oh, no way. I I don't know how that happens. How did that that happen? How did (laughs) that? I don't know. Meanwhile, obviously not related to any of that, the IRA expanded their operations and began attacks and bombings on British soil. Like, you know, if you're going to come to our island and murder our people, have a taste of what it feels like. Yeah. Um, And this is sort of the era when the car bomb becomes a notorious symbol of violence in Ireland because a lot of their attacks are done with car bombs.
1: Oh boy. And have been <laughs> the source of
0: many memes as well as a mixed drink which doubtless leads to many bad decisions.
1: Well, and I know I don't remember if it's... Is it offensive in Ireland to order that drink? Yes. Or is very. it offensive in Ireland? The
0: name was invented for the drink in America. So yes, oh, it, would okay, be, okay. It's, it would be very offensive in Ireland to order that drink. Um, okay, I would so never yeah, that, order one then. Yeah, the car bomb becomes a notorious symbol of this violence and... The British, for their part, are doing their best to do as much violence as they can as well, and they're just actively collaborating with Ulster paramilitary groups. Um, They're just pretty much openly working with these guys, and just doing ridiculous and heinous stuff. Like, in 1975, With British cooperation, the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force, slaughtered a popular and completely non-political Irish dance band called the Miami Show Band. They were like a really popular sort of, I think some people called them the Irish equivalent of the Beatles. Like, they were just a popular band, and they were driving uh, from, I can't remember what city they were driving outside of in Northern Ireland after a concert, and their van just is stopped by the... Um, Ulster Volunteers with a British officer there supervising them and they just murder all the members of this band. I think Are you one, kidding I think, me? I think a couple of them survive but most of them die. Yeah. Why? I don't even know at this point. There's actually a documentary about this, about this particular thing. I can't remember what it's called but I'm sure you can find it googling it. There's a documentary the Miami show specifically about the UVF murdering this
1: band. I feel like we definitely need to put one of their songs at the end of the show i oh wait i think i
0: remember something about i think what they were going to try to do is search their van as an inspection and then plant a bomb in the van that would then blow up at their hotel that night which was in a protestant area and then they would say look you know the catholics have attempted this bombing and then use that as an excuse for reprisals but i think they messed it up and the bomb went off while they were still there at the checkpoint, and so they realized we can't let anyone you know survive who will say what we just did, and so they shoot everyone. I think that's what happened. But somebody does survive. Holy shit,
1: dude! Yeah, I'm trying oh to piece this God. together. It was
0: a while ago I watched this documentary,
1: but yeah, it's just it's terrible. It's really really terrible. Yeah, yeah. No, the, here it is right on, on a, right on Wikipedia. Not that you should trust Wikipedia, but in this <laughs> case. So yet, uh, so there yeah, were. Yeah, there are various like ceasefires
0: and attempts to negotiate some sort of settlement, but they never really work, and the violence continues pretty steadily through the 70s. Um, in 1979, no, this is a heartwarming story, I love this one, a very influential British statesman and a member of the royal family, Lord Mountbatten, who was the former Viceroy of India, he was the Lord of the Navy, he had a... Three-way relationship with his wife and the Indian political y- leader Jawaharlal Nehru. Um, they had a threesome. It was. It's. He was a. He was a notorious sexual deviant. He also probably had a thing for little boys. Like this is. This is somebody who, on basically every possible perspective, was scum. And he happens to go out, take a little vacation to Ireland, to Northern Ireland, and he has a <laughs> boat, and he goes out on his boat, but. There was a surprise guest on that boat, which was a bomb <laughs> planted by the provost, and it blew up and killed him.
1: And some uh, members
0: of his family, which I don't know if they were as evil as he was, but, you know, I don't know.
1: Dude, I, I've seen so much shit about, like, like, royal families.
0: Sacrifices have
1: to be made. Um, yeah. Have so, yeah, so seen, the
0: IRA blew up Lord
1: Mountbatten on a boat, which is fantastic. I mean, good, but have you seen the modern royal families and how they behave with one another? I try have to you avoid ever it. Look- have you ever looked into it, though, at all? A bit, I suppose. It's disgusting. I, I can't even think of the family I'm thinking of right now, but, like, there are pictures of them at parties. The family uh, behaving in the worst ways you can imagine. Photos! Just photographs of siblings doing shit. I, I don't even want to get into it.
0: Yeah, the elites, particularly the British ones, are really, really bad. But I don't care about royal families, because, after all, I'm an advocate of what? What? Physical force Republicanism. (laughs) Yes!
1: Very good. (laughs) Yes,
0: physical force Republicanism. Don't care. Um, Ted
1: Cruz with a bat. Don't care.
0: (laughs) And um, on that same day that Lord Mountbatten went bye-bye, 18 British soldiers guess where they were from they were from that notorious parachute regiment who had done not one but two massacres were killed in an ira bomb ambush with uh, with ieds on a road
1: man you're giving me like bill after bill you're trying to get me to like stay up all night listen to irish music
0: (laughs) i mean isn't that what you do every night Mostly. <laughs> yep. But by the 80s, the IRA had kind of lost hope that it could force a British withdrawal from Northern Ireland by decisive military attacks, which had been the original plan, is that we'll hit the British really hard and eventually they'll have to leave. And they realized that they just didn't have the resources to wage the kind of war that could for- militarily force a withdrawal. So instead, they develop a strategy which is known as the Long War which involved a less intense but much longer-term campaign of, you know, violence and sabotage and bombings and stuff that they could just continue indefinitely to kind of wear the British down. Um, That's what the provos are doing. Meanwhile, the official IRA had completely abandoned violence, and had become a political party. I think they just called them the Irish Workers' Party. But when they did that, and this is getting very familiar, a group split off, which was called the Irish National Liberation Army, which wanted to still be Marxists, but also do violence.
1: Okay. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, and then that group split as well various points. At one point, I can't remember the name. I think a split off from that group started like doing tons of drug trafficking into Ireland. And so Mm. they kind of just became a criminal organization and not actually, you know, advocates of physical force Republicanism. And as a result, the provost wiped them off the face of the earth because they weren't into that shit. Um, that's good. Yeah. They were like, you know, you can't call yourself, you know, Irish patriots and just be drug traffickers. Screw you. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what that group was called, though. But anyway, so the British government um, at this point began... Tr- so remember, they're still just ruling Northern Ireland directly. There is no Northern Irish government anymore. They began treating captured IRA members as ordinary criminals rather than political prisoners um, and trying them in secret courts. So no, they were no longer getting you know the sort of captured soldier thing. They're now just treated as criminals. And they're also tried in secret courts because... The official reason is that if they tried them in courts how you're supposed to, there would be jury intimidation. I think it was probably just so they could kind of skip the whole due process thing, convict everyone. Well, yeah. This, however, leads to massive prison strikes. People who are Irish Republicans already in prison are very upset about this. And this culminates in the Great Hunger Strike of 1981, in which 10 imprisoned Republicans, um, both... Provos, mostly provos, but also some people from that Irish National Liberation Army, died of starvation in protest of British rule of Northern Ireland. Jesus. The first to die um, was a man named Bobby Sands, who was a provo, and while he was in prison, he was elected to the British Parliament by the Catholics of Northern Ireland. Um, like that's how. That's how this was. This was a very widely supported movement—the prison strike—that they literally elected him to parliament while he's like dying in prison.
1: Holy shit! That's amazing.
0: Yeah. Um. There's a famous quote by him that I love, and I want to share with you. And it's it is this: "Our revenge will be the laughter of our children." Hmm. So like you know this, like so many of these people, this is a guy who just wants a free and peaceful irish republic without the british and without a protestant you know elite domination over the population like like i love that
1: quote our revenge will be the laughter of our children i sent you a meme this week about bobby sands didn't i yes you did actually Um, do you want do you
0: want to share what that was or i can
1: uh you'll probably do it better than me so
0: this is this is just fantastic the iranian government Not huge fans of the British since the British organized the coup with the CIA, which toppled the very popular nationalist prime minister of Iran, Mossadegh, and ended up basically starting the cycle of crazy political stuff that still Iran is still in. Like, it was a very stable and peaceful country. For the most part, before the British got involved, and they did that because the government was going to uh, crack down on some of the ridiculously um, generous privileges enjoyed by the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which was just making huge amounts of money exploiting Iranian resources. They were going to have to actually, like, you know, pay a decent amount of money to the you know the people whose resources they were taking. And so Winston Churchill actually wrote a letter to the President of the United States asking him to use the CIA to topple this Prime Minister so that he couldn't endanger the profits of an oil company. Oh, God. And that started the whole cycle of political unrest in iran which we're still seeing today but anyway so iran did not does not like the british for obvious reasons and after all this happened they renamed the road that the british embassy is on to bobby sands road so that all (laughs) official documents have to have bobby sands name on it like that is a pro gamer move if ever there was one
1: (laughs) i didn't realize it went that deep holy shit that's hilarious
0: yeah, so you know you're you're working in the British Embassy, and every official thing, you know, all the stationery, everything has Bobby Sands Road on it That's when amazing. he's you know starved himself to death in protest of uh, British rule in Northern Ireland.
1: That's amazing.
0: It's Thought also um, from a letter or part of a memoir that was smuggled out of the prison that he wrote about his time in prison. That the phrase Shucky our law." which is what I said at the beginning, which means our day will come. That's when it got popped. That phrase became a popular um, Irish Republican slogan because it was in the uh, the notes smuggled out of prison from Bobby Sands. That's amazing. Yep. Wow. So, yeah, like, basically, you know, I think that Iran thing was basically our honorable mention for this week.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's a win right there. Yep.
0: Yep. Yep. Um, so after Bobby Sands dies, over 100,000 people attend his funeral in Belfast. Damn. That's a lot. That is um, a lot. Yeah. So there's a lot of a lot of popular support among the uh, Catholic population for this uh, this campaign. Uh, meanwhile, the Republican Long War continues on. Funded in part by donations from Americans um, back during like the '70s and '80s, in a lot of Irish bars in America, there'd be like a tip jar where you could donate money to the IRA. Um, oh my God! Yeah, those are those That's were the days. Amazing. Those are the I days. I would drop
1: my credit card. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so yeah, there's literally money being sent from like bars in Boston and New York and Baltimore and stuff to fund the IRA.
1: That's amazing. This was
0: when nineteen eighty eighties and like eighties and seventies uh, and eighties mostly. Wow, yep. Um, weapons are being brought in by gun runners from Ireland and elsewhere. There's Americans running guns into Ireland as well, and by the state of Libya by Muammar Gaddafi because the British assisted in the U.S. bombing of Libya, and so. As just sort of a, a screw you to the British, he starts sending weapons to the IRA. Obviously, Mymar Gaddafi does not have a dog in the game of I- Irish physical force republicanism. Um, but it's just because he hates the British.
1: You know, it's, when you start reading about the history of these countries, like Libya, you start to learn some shit you didn't know. And you start to think a little different than you used to. You start to have a
0: little bit too much to think.
1: Yep. Yep. Um, so, yeah, there's, they're getting
0: lots of weapons and stuff. Um, meanwhile, the UVF um, and all those Protestant paramilitaries are importing large amounts of weaponry and explosives from South Africa um, is where they're getting a lot of their stuff smuggled in from. Um, Interesting. Uh, I say smuggled, but there was not a huge effort being made to stop them. So, yeah, um, I shouldn't think so. And, yeah, the loyalist paramilitaries were at the same time continuing their campaign of violence against the Catholic and Nationalist population of Northern Ireland, almost always still with the cooperation of the police and military. Um, a later inquiry actually showed that during the 80s, 85% of the intelligence, which was used to then target people by these paramilitary groups, was given to them by from official sources. So the government's literally like giving out names and addresses to Protestant paramilitaries.
1: Wait... Oh, oh shit.
0: Yeah, it's like, hey, these, you know, these people are probably Re- Irish republicans and they just, you know, give the names and addresses to a paramilitary group that goes and kills them. Jesus Christ. Yeah, so 85% of the intelligence that they're using to target people is coming from official sources, the police and the military. Wow. Yeah, um the most high-profile IRA attack in the 80s was the Brighton Hotel bombing in which a 100-pound bomb was detonated in the basement of a hotel where a British um, conservative party, so the ruling party at the time, conference was being held. They missed killing Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister, by only a few minutes, um, but the bomb killed five, including a member of parliament, and wounded 31. And the IRA claimed responsibility and said it would try again, and they issued this great statement, uh, which I'm going to read. Mrs. Thatcher will now realize that Britain cannot occupy our country and torture our prisoners and shoot our people in their own streets and get away with it. Today, we were unlucky. But remember, we only have to be lucky once. You have to be lucky every time. Give Ireland peace and there will be no more war. Oh, my God. (laughs) And the best thing is, this part of this, the, we, um, (coughs) we, um, only have to be lucky once, you have to be lucky every time, has made it onto Facebook, like, mom sphere as a motivational poster. They attribute to Margaret Thatcher the quote, we only have to be lucky once, you have to be lucky every time as an inspirational quote from Margaret Thatcher when it is really from the IRA statement about their attempt to kill Margaret Thatcher. My but God. But you literally like see it, you know, superimposed over a picture of a sunset or something being shared by moms on Facebook.
1: <laughs> That's <laughs> I hilarious. kid you not,
0: I literally came across that.
1: That has to be on purpose. That has to be on purpose.
0: I don't know, man. I don't have a lot of faith in humanity anymore.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's like okay, I've been, I've been Margaret Thatcher has been requested several times, and I just haven't tackled it because I, I know that that's very touchy. Um, but that's amazing that they got uh her potential assassin. I mean, hey, hey man,
0: if you want me to tackle it, I will fricking light her up.
1: All right, light her up, man. <laughs> um, I don't know, I don't know shit about her.
0: Yeah, um, that's we can, we can definitely put that on the agenda. Like I'm, I've got, I've got some fire. But anyway, um, so. That's just a fun thing with that, the Facebook meme. Um, let's see, other big things. On February 7th of 1991, the IRA attempted to assassinate the British Prime Minister John Major and his war cabinet by launching a mortar at Number 10 Downing Street, which is where the Prime Minister works in London, while they while the cabinet was gathered there to discuss the Gulf War. Um, they did hit it, but it caused four injuries, um, two to police officers, and I think other staff none of the the prime minister and the high officials were not harmed but they literally like you know like looked both ways and then set up a mortar on the sidewalk and hit the prime minister's (laughs) office with it in 1991
1: 91 think about how recent that is everybody
0: yeah 91
1: (laughs) that's hilarious
0: yeah no it's it is crazy um it is absolutely crazy in 1996 after calling in a warning and allowing people to evacuate, the IRA detonated a 3,300-pound detonated a 3, bomb in the center of Manchester, England, leveling buildings and causing an estimated $2 billion in damage, but no one was killed since they sent a warning to let people evacuate first. They just literally blew
1: up the center of a city. Well, that was very gentlemanly of them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They often did that. Not always. You know, some of their bombings did, I will admit, have very high civilian casualty rates. But they did do some, something like this. So at least sometimes they did a nice thing, which is more than we can say for the British. That's true. <laughs> um, and so this, this political violence in Northern Ireland and from Northern Ireland into England continued throughout the 80s and the 90s until the late 90s when the IRAs, war, and thus the period known as the Troubles were finally brought to an end by what's called the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. So this, um, the IRA, representatives of Northern Ireland, representatives from the Republic of Ireland, and representatives from the United Kingdom all met together and agreed on a peace treaty and, you know, certain stipulations. So self-government was restored to Northern Ireland. It would no longer be run directly from London. But this government was not going to be the Protestant government for a Protestant people. It was going to have guaranteed power sharing with the nationalist Catholic parties, as well as abolishing the Royal Ulster Constabulary and replacing it with a police force that was required to be half
1: Catholic. Holy shit.
0: Yeah, um, so they uh, th- this finally brought m- you know most of the violence. To an end, the Good Friday Agreement is what it's called. This is in 1998, so you know this, the troubles went on for 30 years of pretty frequent bombings and you know, massacres and stuff, like it was a a horrific time.
1: You never hear about this shit though.
0: It's crazy to think how recent this was, you know, 1998 is when this war is ending. Man.
1: I was four. (laughs) Yeah. That's amazing.
0: No, it really is crazy to think about that in a, not that long ago, you know, in a country we think of as a, you know, a modern, you know, like, you know, modern, civilized, whatever, built-up country, you literally had this crazy violence happening in our lifetimes. You know, people pointing, pointing mortars at the prime minister's office, you know, like the center of Manchester being blown up in 1996. Like, that's really crazy. Yeah. To think about. Um so this was ended mostly with the Good Friday Agreement. But just like in the case of the Civil War, there were of course splinter groups who did not accept the peace. Um and to this day there are still isolated IRA cells. Um the two main ones are called the Continuity IRA and the Real IRA. And they do occasionally carry out attacks. Um, The continuity IRA does that. They sometimes bomb policemen in Northern Ireland. The real IRA mostly kills drug dealers. But um, both of them are still active. Um, Obviously, it's nothing like it was during the Troubles, but there are still active IRA groups out there. Um, Because at the end of the day, you know, Ireland still is a country that is divided and the scars of British imperialism are very, very real, and the literal 800 years of torment and oppression inflicted on the Irish people leave some very, very deep impressions.
1: Yeah, no shit, man.
0: Yeah, so that's um, where I thought it would be a good place to, to end this Irish series there, with the Good Friday Agreement and the mostly peaceful status of Northern Ireland. But, you know, these days it's still a huge question about the border because with Brexit happening and the UK leaving the EU, how the how the border is going to work is now a huge issue because when Ireland and the, and the UK were both in the EU, it was fine because they were both EU countries, so the border didn't really exist. But with uh, Britain leaving, how that's going to work with Ireland, who's still in the EU, is up for anyone's guess. And um, the most powerful political party in Northern Ireland is the democratic unionist party who are very, very extreme unionists. Um, many of whom like the founders of which were very involved in the UVF and stuff. So this is still a very real and cogent issue in people's lives.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I I honestly know nothing about that. Um, or, or any of that, honestly, I I don't even understand most of Brexit. Um, but I don't know. There's still a, there's still a little glimmer of hope for me. I'm sort of like maybe just maybe somehow Ireland could become its own thing, completely self sufficient, running its own shit. You know, um, I want sounds, to believe.
0: Sounds like physical force, Republicanism to me.
1: <laughs> yep, we're going we're going the full the full gamut. We're going all the way there, but we'll have to see. I mean, I don't I don't know what the uh, the situation is like over there. I don't know what their biggest issues are these days. I don't know any of that stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously
0: I had to be very selective in what we talked about because like, if I was to talk about like, you know, the changes in Irish society from, you know, the time of the Easter rising to modern, you know, there'd be talk about the economics, talk about the social liberalization. There's so many different things going on and just can't talk about it all. So I just wanted to kind of focus on, um, well, on the violence, basically, um, sort of tra- <laughs> tracing, out, tracing out the conflict, um, because as we talked about, once, um, once Ireland had declared its independence and secured it and had the civil war and everything, actual Ireland itself was pretty peaceful for the most part. And all the violence was happening in the north, which is why this episode we really just sort of transitioned to northern Ireland, because there's not really that much violence happening in southern Ireland. Makes His violence sense. coming from Southern Ireland to Northern <laughs> Ireland.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. Um, yeah, man. Great job bringing us through the history of Ireland, seriously, and giving yeah, it's me a, a, it's a some little crazy,
0: bit- crazy stuff. Um, so yeah, so I hope you've enjoyed this. Um, obviously, there's tons more, but this is just kind of the outline of Irish resistance against invaders. Over the course of fifteen hundred years. In yeah, I,
1: I mean, I would say that this is a good place to get started reading on your own. If you if you've enjoyed this series and you want to learn more, this is where it's up to you. You know, because uh, there's just so much to read on. And one of the things I've discovered, just working our way through this series and other series is, that series is series that we've had. Um, And even individual episodes, it's just like there's so much to read. At a certain point, you have to start doing it yourself. So, if you've found this episode or this series particularly compelling and you want to know more, it's literally just picking up books. That's it. That's my Sesame Street message. Do you have anything you'd like to say in closing, George? I
0: don't know how to read.
1: (laughs) You just made all this up.
0: It All right, past- I think it's time to <laughs> what? It was pa- it was passed down to me in the traditions of our people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, man, I think it's time to head to the surface.
0: I think so. Yeah, it's it's getting late.
1: It's getting late. And I got to go to bed cuz I got to be up early. So, Aaron, are you all ready for the big move? No, I have too much to do. So this is the part of the show where I tell you that we might not have a typical episode next week because I am literally moving across the country. What we may do is we may have a discussion episode or a Q&A, something like that. Um, so if any of you guys have like questions you'd like us to answer, topics you'd like us to have a little discussion on, uh, send those in to Twitter, Facebook, and uh, we'll we'll bring those up. If we don't get anything, uh, you know, we might do something anyway. Uh, but I'm going to be spending the next week moving up north and trying to reconnect with my family, and it's going to be a whole bunch of, you know, figuring shit out, and you know, it's going to be a it's going to be a mess. So we're probably not going to have our typical episode next week, at least in the typical form. So if you want some cool content, or if you're listening and you're like, hey, like, you know okay, like they're just going to talk. I'd like them to talk about this. Just send your shit in and we'll talk about it. Like almost anything, just send it in. We'll talk about it. If you want us to talk about movies, you want to talk about books or shit like that, just anything, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. So.
0: And if you don't send any suggestions in, it might just be an hour of me alone in a room reciting South Slavic epic poetry. So like you've been warned.
1: Is that a thing you're actually doing?
0: I mean, not right now. Right now, I'm doing a podcast with you.
1: Well, I was gonna say, is is it like a is that? Do you have like a demo you could give us? <laughs> not tonight. It's too late. All right. It's only ten thirty <laughs> for you. For you, that's nothing. That's
0: true. That's true. Anyway, yeah. Sorry, I was had it on my mind. Was reading something else. Well, I'm gonna so turn you... wheels. Uh, sorry, go on. I was gonna say, do you uh, do you have the playlist all picked out for the drive? Is it all Ronnie Drew and the Dubliners, like we talked
1: about? Oh, you know it. You oh, know good. it. There, good. there's not a single song on there that comes from anything British. It's 100% Irish. Perfect. And that's a good thing. Shucky arlaw. Shucky arlaw indeed. Well, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right. So consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing. Drop us a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. If you like this uh, this series in particular, let us know by including a little comment in that tip that says, Shaki Arla. Our cover-up was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. With all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of physical force Irish republicanism and also Miami show band play you out. It's time to say goodbye I'm sorry that I took your time With a poem that didn't rhyme We had such good
0: times
1: We laughed in rain but I'm sure rip it would all work out.